Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Rapidly shorting my stock in Andrew Yang, it's election shock therapy, <laughs> VP stakes edition, or Veep stakes if you prefer. Hey guys. Hey. Uh, this is Chris Yang Moore. has a stock, really? He did. <laughs> he did. Did you, see that he's, did you see that he was uh, snubbed for a speaking slot at the Democratic convention? No. Poor guy. Poor Yang yeah. gang. Wow. So, yep. Uh, no love for the Yang gang. So it makes me wonder, is there always going to be somebody who's snubbed? Like this happens every year with the Oscars and the Emmys. There's always like that pretty good actor, that pretty good role that sh- maybe should have gotten on stage and yeah. just didn't. I mean, um, they let our governor speak last time. Like how do they not have room for Andrew Yang? Our governor, our previous governor could not speak his way out of a paper bag. But they still let him talk. Like don't let that man talk. Incidentally, speaking through a paper bag is one of the accepted Minnesota Department of Health's features for avoiding COVID. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, I'm curious. Oh, by the way, I'm Chris Moore, and joining me here on this uh, Andy virtual Bramson. hangout. And Matt Kukum. And Sam Mulberry is in a meeting. So, guys, <laughs> Bill Clinton has a prominent speaking slot at the Democratic National Convention. Bill Clinton yeah. is almost the very definition of super problematic these days. Why is Bill Clinton speaking at the Democratic National Convention and not say Andrew Yang? Well, first of all, he's a former president. And secondly, I still, for my money, like the Democratic Party has no better speaker, public speaker, than Bill Clinton. He is good political theater. He's oh, yeah. very compelling. Um, I will watch that speech. I don't know if I'll watch it live, but I'll watch it at some point because he's just intrigues me, even though I completely acknowledge what you're saying about how problematic he is in today's world. Yes, he's. Uh, I'm just wondering. Th- there's there's a non-zero chance that something uh, related to the Jeffrey Epstein story about Bill Clinton comes out between now and the convention because you better yep. believe Apple researchers for the Republican Party are working real real hard on that. <laughs> and um, it, it's it would be weird to have to replace him uh, midstream and have somebody else come out and speak. Uh, <laughs> Yang is yeah. in the bullpen. Don't worry. No, I mean, I mean, if that happens, it's it's got to be a it's got to be a woman. Um, you've you've got to replace him with a woman if that happens. But uh, we don't have to worry about that quite as much as we have to worry about the other big news uh, that's come down the pipe. It's caused us to assemble Avengers style, and that is Joe Biden has finally selected his vice presidential candidate, and to fairly little surprise, it was at least uh, conventional wisdom frontrunner Kamala Harris. Yep. So, guys, what does the political science literature not not getting into public reactions, not getting into punditry yet? We'll we'll get there. But what is what 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 can we say to people about what what we know about vice presidential picks and their impact on elections? Their impact is extremely minimal, and I think we've talked about this before. Uh, but but we should go ahead and get this out on the table before we launch into our um, sort of 
analysis of the pick. So the electoral impact is very limited. Um, right. It really doesn't make much of a difference who the VP is for the final outcome of the election. There's a few other sort of smaller effects. So regional effects are pretty small. Sometimes you'll see presidents try to pick uh, a candidate from a different region to sort of balance the ticket, but the regional effects are at best very small. There's maybe a little bit more of a mixed um, mixed effect for like home state advantage. Um, so, you know, if you're, you know, wanting to, as a, as a presidential candidate, try to pick up a key swing state, you, that might influence um, who you pick. But here, um, it's it's really small as well. Um, it's actually inversely proportional to the size of the VP's home state, right? So it doesn't really matter if the VP is coming from a really large state, aka California. It only matters if they're coming from a, a smaller state uh, because they're more well-known, perhaps. People feel more of a personal connection. But of course, the smaller states don't matter as much, right? right. Um, so, you know, there's really there's very little effect that that we can determine as political scientists uh, that the VP pick has on the final outcome. And that's about all there is to say. So, yeah, the one thing I would add to that is just saying, like, I think it can impact the way people think about the presidential candidate. And I think that yes. can matter. Um, and so, I mean, the most prominent example of this in recent times is Sarah Palin's selection by John McCain. I mean, I think in 08, there was a case to be made that, you know, McCain was the kind of seasoned veteran over, you know, newcomer Barack Obama. He was experienced. He had a kind of much longer track record. And there were some people who thought, you know, maybe that was actually important, right? Versus this kind of guy who didn't have very much experience. And then McCain, who's, you know, 72 with a history of skin cancer, goes. Before she'd been mayor of Wasilla, which was, you know, not a, um, a prominent job, to put it mildly. Um, and and then she didn't seem knowledgeable, right? When they people started pushing her on issues, um, she really didn't seem to know all that much. Um, and I think that affected the way people thought, it affected the way people thought about McCain, right, is is he making good decisions? And do we want somebody who made this kind of decision uh, making presidential decisions? And so I think, you know, in the same way, like I, I did see a few landmines for Joe Biden, right? If he had selected, say, you know, Keisha Bottoms, who's the mayor of Atlanta, or Stacey Abrams, the former House minority leader and gubernatorial candidate from Georgia, you know, those were tempting because, I, you know, Georgia might be a swing state. Um, they're, you know, people who you know, had some real charisma, but they also did not have that kind of experience that says, yes, this. damaged him. Um, Harris, in that sense, seems like a pretty safe pick. Yeah, I mean, if, if presidents or presidential candidates typically do pick people that, you know, don't drag them down. Um, yep. And those and those candidates who do tend to pick sort of, you know, bad VP choices, sort of like, you know, John McCain and Sarah Palin, um, they're they're losing anyway, right? Because right. they, they right. themselves, you know, yep. aren't compelling um, or they're, you know, facing some some significant disadvantages. Yep. Um, and so one of the things that's really hard as political scientists is you can look at how maybe a VP choice affects people's perception of the ticket as a whole, but to sort of um, separate that out from the sort of electoral effects is really difficult because you can't control for it, right? You can't sort of run two elections simultaneously, you know, the right. control group of, you know, no VP pick and then the VP pick to compare, you know, turnout yeah. amongst certain groups and, and yeah. how they and how they vote. You can't do that. Um, and that makes makes and you couple that with the fact that we have a very small sample size, only just a few presidential elections in the modern era. It's really hard to say anything super definitive. Yep. Okay. Let me ask though, as an international relations guy, sort of on the outside of this looking in, 
is Sarah Palin, who's often pointed to as the the real uh, the real VP pick that that really affected the race. Uh, she was initially sort of lauded. She had about a week, maybe two week honeymoon period. Uh, yeah. There was actually a re- an interesting documentary recently produced by Crooked Media. Um, where some of the Democratic campaign workers at the time thought, oh, no, we've really lost momentum to McCain here because this is a yeah. real – he said he's really hit a home run. He pulled this uh, this mayor in Alaska out of nowhere, and all of a sudden she's, you know, uh, she's commanding the media. But then the problem was she continued to command the media and in a, ba- and in a bad way. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Right. Now, yeah. ever since then, our vice presidential selections have been people who – whatever their merits or, or faults were, did not command the media. Uh, say what you will about people like Mike Pence and Tim Kaine, but they're basically the human version of the Crayola colored taupe. Uh, they, are, they are not overshadowing the presidential candidate. And that's also true. Well, I don't know. Uh, this will be an interesting that question. That might not be true for Harris, and that's something we should talk yeah. about. And what I think is doubly important about sort of the Harris um the Harris uh, Biden ticket or Biden Harris ticket is that really people, you know, they're looking at Biden, but they're also thinking and knowing that he might be a one-term president. Yeah. Um, or if he's a two-term president, he might not last. He's, he's getting yeah. old. Um, if he is yeah, elected, sure. he will be the oldest president in the United States history on day one. Um, and so, you know, now, you know, we're political scientists. So we think about this sort of thing. We don't really know how much the average American, the average voter is thinking about things in these yep. terms. But but I think there's a good case to be made that um, the vice presidential choice for Biden matters more than it typically would. Yep. Um, and yep. so so that makes his choice of, of particular import for this election. Yep. I'm just wondering, it seems to me like this fits in a kind of a classic mold of vice of presidential candidates picking a vice president to reassure people of so, in some kind of way reassurance seems to be the buzzword you're either reassuring people for demographic reasons you're reassuring people for ideological reasons for example uh going all the way back to 1992 one of the reasons al gore was selected by bill clinton was that he was seen as somewhat more socially conservative and as Bill Clinton was sort of this moderate Democrat and, and parties were still running for the middle, Al Gore did have somewhat of a record of voting pro-life. And so there was this mm-hmm. idea of, oh, he'll reassure potential uh, swing vote, uh, centrist swing voters of Bill Clinton's bona fides. And that's kind of it's almost sort of, sort of sounds alien in our current context. Right. But um, – <clears throat> But Tim Kaine was to reassure people of Hillary Clinton. Uh, Joe Biden was to reassure uh, uh, was this uh, this elder statesman, and now much more elder on the Barack Obama ticket. So there, there, it seems like his reassurance is the order of the day. I'm not sure who exactly Kamala Harris is reassuring, other than perhaps I would not. I can't even say that she's reassuring sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party because she's certainly, even though she is a very progressive senator, she didn't portray herself as a progressive whilst running for president. Right. Which is how most yeah, people know her. Y- yes, yes and no. Um, so she sort of flip-flopped around um, right. to some extent when she was running in the primary. So at one point um, during the primary, she was basically um, right along with Bernie Sanders. Can, can you all hear me? Because your, your screen is... Yeah, you're, you're coming okay. through just fine. 
Okay. Well, for some reason things look funky <laughs> on my end. I, I will continue. Yeah. Um, so during the primary, um, so for example, um, she originally advocated for eliminating private health insurance. She ended up walking mm -hmm. that back. Yeah. Um, she has stated in the primary that she favors banning right to work laws. She was a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. Um, and she had her own sort of proposal for basically um, carbon neutrality, carbon neutral electricity by 2030. Um, she talked about expanding the Supreme Court, court packing, adding justices. Mm -hmm. um, in the debate, um, there was one point she had this exchange with Biden, um, and Biden said he was obliged to sort of follow the Constitution, and she basically laughed in his face and said, you know, what Constitution? Um, she said that she would single-handedly, if she was elected president, um, basically use unilateral executive powers to um, to sort of ban assault we weapons and certain sorts of ammunition. Um, and, and the list goes on. Um, and, you know, and this really is in keeping with uh, much of her, um, her career in the Senate. Um, so, and her career in the Senate has actually been um, a very liberal one. So right. if you want to look at a good sort of objective measure um, of, of how, members of Congress sort of line up next to each other on an ideological mm -hmm. scale. Political scientists um, back in the late 80s basically created this sort of ideological scale using sort of uh, the votes of members of Congress. Um, and it turns out that during the 115th and 116th Congresses, uh, these are the two Congresses that, that uh, Senator Harris has served in, she was the second most liberal sen senator in the Senate. The only person who was more liberal than her was Elizabeth Warren. She was actually to the left of Bernie Sanders, astonishingly. Um, so she is certainly by no means a, a moderate candidate. In fact, she's actually quite liberal. Um, now, this is, I think, interesting because right now what you see are media reports um, that she's you know, basically a, a moderate candidate. Um, and you see you know, some sort of ideological purists on the left um, saying that, um, that she's not leftward enough. But if you look at her record and you look at most of the things that she said um, in the past, you know, in the past, you know, four to six years, she's actually um, pretty far to the left, a lot more, a lot further to the left than Joe Biden is. Yeah. Right, right. Agreed. And I think what I would add to that is, I mean, I think where the left maybe has a problem with her is on two things, right? One is, it's not as all, at all clear that she's nearly as committed as, say, a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren to really taking on Wall Street, right? Those kind of established financial interests that are, um, you know, are kind of dominating um, a lot of the political and economic sphere, right? I mean, there's real concern on the left that we need to get that under control. We need to somehow start, you know, getting in control of this, like, income inequality gap, right? And that, you know, Harris seems to be more like in that traditional part of the Democratic Party where, you know, you give some lip service to that, but you don't really change the dynamic, right? I mean, we've had Barack Obama's president eight years. We had Bill Clinton for eight years. That dynamic did not shift, right? And so I think she she fits in that mold. So in that sense, compared to Sanders and Warren, she's moderate. The other thing I think where, you know, she could have an issue with the left um, and people who are really, you know, especially the minority communities in the Democratic Party is, you know, she does not seem like someone who is an obvious kind of reformer of the criminal justice system, right? Her record in California came under a lot of criticism um, that she was, you know, kind of standing with the establishment and, you know, har harshly penalizing people. 
um, and kind of upholding a system that does disproportionately lead to, um, you know, the imprisonment of more African Americans and more Hispanics than whites, right? Um, so, you know, I guess the other side of that is, you know, maybe she's the person who's equipped to actually tackle that if she really wants to, because she understands it. And she's somebody who, you know, says, Hey, I'm serious about law and order, but I also want to tackle this problem, but there's nothing in her record that suggests that she would be inclined to do so. So I think those are the two things I would point to where the left might have a real issue with her. But other than that, I mean, I completely agree. Her record is a record that is, um, very liberal. One of the most liberal in the Senate. So, I want to push back on this a second, and I'll, I'll direct this question to Matt, but if either one of you want to respond, that's fine, which is we've, we have, I think this is really useful, interesting uh, data, and if anybody wants to check this out, it's publicly available. It's the DW yep. Nominate data set. So yep. if you just Google search DW Nominate, uh, you can find out the relative positionality of, of any U.S. senator over time yeah. um, and see who's relatively liberal, who's relatively conservative. Yeah, go to uh, voteview.com. It's all there, and it's updated. Yep. I'm, what I'm wondering is, is that measure for senators a good indication of what they might be like in the executive branch? So Barack Obama uh, rated as a pretty darn liberal senator um, when he was in the Senate, for the brief time he was in the Senate. And I, what I don't know is for other senators who become presidents or vice presidents, do they become more pragmatic? Do they become more constrained once they're out of the Senate? Does this, this uh, oftentimes a, a, um, a senator does not get to choose exactly what they're voting on. So because uh, for the last couple of sessions, Mitch McConnell has been in charge of the Senate and is anything that comes up for a vote has been uh, uh, basically greenlit by him. That's yep. in a sense shaking, shaping what Kamala Harris is voting on. Right. I don't, I don't know. Is this a good measure for understanding how liberal conservative uh, a, a, an executive might be? Yeah, um, so it's it's a blunt instrument to be sure, um, yeah. and I think that's always something to keep in mind. Is that that's why you shouldn't solely rely on it. So I'll say a couple of things in addition to that. The first thing is that, of course, um, as a representative, especially as a senator, your role is so different than that of a president, right? So as a senator, you're representing a particular state. You have a particular constituency. Her constituency is California, um, which yeah. is which is quite diverse actually, um, mm -hmm. but it is solidly blue. Um, it's it's yeah. left coast, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so as a senator. Senator, you're you're very much, and this kind of fits her personality. You're always sort of posturing, trying to take certain sorts of public stances, um, yeah. and you're trying to represent your constituents in that way. But of course, if you're president, then your constituency is the country, or at least right. you know a little over one half of the country, right? Um, and so that means that you you have more sort of maneuvering room in a sense, um, more room to be pragmatic. If you want to get things done, you probably have to negotiate some with the other side, certainly negotiate within different factions of your own party. Um, and so this means that uh, presidents, you know, sometimes become or people become more pragmatic when they enter office. Um, and so that's why it's helpful to look beyond sort of these um, these, you know, DW nominate scores that you can find and look at sort of the the, the character of the person. Um, not, not just the things that they've voted on and how they vote um, when the votes are kind of out of their control, but what sorts of things they do, what sorts of things that they espouse, right? Um, and, and you know, Kamala Harris, um, even on these sort of more subjective grounds, has still proven herself to be um, extremely progressive, um, very aggressively progressive. Um, and, um, and you can... A progressive is progressive. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and, you know, 
bully for them, right? Um, but she's been very progressive, not only in her positions, but also her rhetoric um, and also yeah, in sort of the, the, her displays of partisanship, right? Yeah. So um, so she's um, um, she's tenacious, right? So in, uh, if you look in the primary, for example, she said, you know, Biden is a racist, you know, told him that basically <laughs> to his face, basically oh, okay. in- um, That will make for some fun campaign commercials. Yeah. Um, you know, she has this sort of prosecutorial sort of edginess um, that she brings yep. with her when she's trying to basically get her, you know, do things that are going to help her and her agenda. Right. So she was one of the um, the nastier senators involved in the Brett Kavanaugh judicial nominations. She accused right. him right up there on national TV of gang rape. Right. Which turned right. out to be wholly unsubstantiated. So so she's she's very aggressive. She's very progressive. Um, and that could, you know, help, yeah. I guess, amongst a certain constituency in the Democratic Party. Um, and that could help shore up people who might be concerned that Biden is sort of this wishy-washy, you know, guy who represents sort of, you know, the old part of the Democratic Party. And we need to get the mm -hmm. Democratic Party going a new direction. And Harris kind of represents that in a certain way, with the exceptions that that Andy noted. Um, but but I would say that, you know, given given the things that she said, Chris, uh, I would say that um, she represents um, basically this new part of the Democratic Party. And I wouldn't expect if Biden wins and Harris comes along for the ride, and especially if Democrats get control of the Senate, I would not expect her to necessarily become significantly more moderate and pragmatic. Yeah. And Biden, for that matter. That's a very think, long answer to your question. I think that's fair. Um, I think what I would say, I would just add, like maybe to slightly moderate that is it all... It also at times was not clear to me when Harris was running for president that she knew what she wanted to do. So on the one hand, she does have this kind of mm -hmm. these really like progressive stances. On the other hand, she lacks the kind of consistent coherence, if I can put it that way, right? That say an Elizabeth Warren or a Bernie Sanders has. I feel like I know, you know, what what does an Elizabeth Warren want to do if she mm -hmm. were to become president? Or a Bernie Sanders, what does he want to do? Right. I'm not sure mm -hmm. they can accomplish it, but I I had a sense like, yeah, these are the things they want to do. Um, this is what they stand for. And Harris felt like she flopped around a bit on that, right? I mean, like that she at times like, well, yeah, Medicare for all. Oh, maybe not. Maybe I'll let people keep their private insurance. I don't know, right? Um, so she is progressive, but it's not always clear like how how committed she is to particular planks, I guess, of of that. Right. So I think that's where, you know, I do wonder if if she is in a position, say, where the Senate's 50-50 or McConnell still has a slim majority, could she turn out to be more of a deal maker than, say, a Bernie Sanders? And I think maybe um, that, you know, there's there's some things that suggest that that maybe she would do that. I also think I mean, it's just just commenting on her as a choice overall. Like, I think it's, you know, Biden had kind of painted himself into a corner in terms of like who he could choose. Right. He had promised very early on that he was going to choose a woman. Um, which limited his choices. He was being uh, put under a lot of pressure to choose an African-American woman, um, especially after the George Floyd killing, right? Um, and that really limited him. I mean, Harris is literally the second African-American woman to ever be in the U.S. Senate. The other one is, you know, served one term and is 73, so not on the list of options, right? Um, when you have a 78-year-old, you know, presidential candidate. So, you know, I mean, there, there weren't a lot of kind of top level nominees and a lot of the other African-American women on Biden's shortlist, frankly, didn't obviously clear that bar of, yeah, ready to be president, which I think is always critical. And especially when the candidate is as old as Biden is. Um, okay. So, you know, I don't know that he had a lot of other strong options, yep. which is one reason why she was on top of almost everyone's list for almost the entire kind of speculation about this. Um, she checked the most boxes. Um, despite the problems that you've rightly highlighted, Matt, that could, could be an issue with her. 
Yeah, I, I totally I, agree. And I mean, I think you're right. And at the risk of contradicting myself a little bit, perhaps is you're right. I mean, she did, you know, she is not, she doesn't have the sort of like really principled thought out policy positions um, that Warren and Sanders have. And especially that Warren or, or really yeah. both of them could sort of articulate firmly. There was times when, you know, Harris was, you know, criticized for a position and she'd be like, well, this is complicated and we'll talk about it. So she would kind right. of walk things back. Um, it's not clear as much what she stood for. And that's probably why in part, um, you know, she didn't do very well um, right. in the primary right. because because you knew what you're getting with Warren, you knew what you're getting yep. with with Sanders, you knew what you're getting with Biden, right? Yep. Um, but you know, and, and people want to know where to you know where to put a person, right? Um, yep. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons. But I mean, to your other point, you're right. Ooh. I mean, of the very short list, um, she was the best pick, right? She's relatively young, but she's you know not too old. Um, she's you know, a strong <laughs> candidate, but she's not a flamethrower and likely to go off the rails like some of the other people on the shortlist. Um, she's been largely vetted, unlike yep. basically everyone else on the shortlist. She has campaign experience. She has electoral experience. Right. And people can easily sort of visualize her as like, oh, this this is a president, yep. right? This is somebody yep. who's ready to step into the office, unlike basically most of the other people on the shortlist. So as you said, Andy, she, she ticks the most boxes. Um, she's sort of the obvious choice from from yep. that very short list of people. Absolutely. So I think what this tells me, at least, um, is that for the Biden campaign, this was Biden feeling like he could make a vice presidential pick that didn't need to capture uh, a huge number of voters he wasn't already going to get. Right. If he felt like he was just bleeding voters on the left and there were people who and Bernie Sanders was gearing up to run a third party protest campaign or uh, people were going to stay home in droves that he might have to pick somebody like Elizabeth Warren uh, to, to really fire up the left side of the base. Right. He, he didn't feel like he needed to do that. He's yep. leading Trump somewhere around eight points as of right yep. now nationally uh, and also in battleground states and it you know, a 538 released their uh, their the first round of their presidential predictive model and they've got Biden up uh, 70 to 71 to 28 uh, with one percent chance of it being tied and sent to the house um, and uh, that's that's a pretty big lead. Now, admittedly, it's exactly the same lead Hillary Clinton had when they released their model, first model back in 2016. But uh, this, is a, this is a pretty substantial lead. And this shows the Biden campaign, I think, felt confident that they could make a safe pick. Right. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, so she's, I mean, even though the media is reporting that she's moderate, which is just utter nonsense, right. um, if you have any sort of objective look at this. I mean, they're running interference, right? Because it's yeah. to Biden's benefit that she's per portrayed as moderate. But I can promise you what you're going to see is you're going to see, and the Trump campaign would be smart to do this, is to paint her as the progressive that she actually is, right? And, so and that's exactly what they're doing. And that's yep. what they're doing now, and they're going to do it all the way through. And that's going to be, you know, you know, I, I think I think she's plenty liberal enough to get people excited about the Biden ticket beyond simply voting for Biden because um, he's the only you know, he's the alternative to Trump. Right. So yeah. she you know, right. liberal enough um, for the base. But I, I do wonder if if, you know, certain things that Kamala Harris has said, certain things that she's done in the past will be a drag um, and could potentially. Yeah. Um, hurt um, hurt Biden, especially with the uh, the suburban moderates, um, who he really should try to pick up as many as he can, um, especially in the tipping point states. Yeah, and that's where I think I mean, like you know, you think about his short list earlier, right? Klobuchar, our senator, was on that. 
I think in that sense, she would have been a much safer pick. But the moment, you know, after the George Floyd killing, I mean, that just was not going to happen nope. for yep. several reasons, right? But I do mm-hmm. think, like, you can think about the things that, you know, might have been, right? Klobuchar would have been much more reassuring to the suburban moderates, and the left probably would have still held their nose and voted, even if they weren't enthused about her, because, you know, again, Biden's the not Trump. But now, that's not going to happen now. From the Republican Party perspective, especially the presidential campaign, I'm not thinking about Trump himself so much. Trump sort of sits above and apart his own campaign. Uh, because of his own facility with social media and his, and right. his sort of erratic, shall we say, uh, a way of uh, speaking about himself and his opponents. But, uh, <laughs> but for the campaign itself, does the selection of someone like Harris change how the Dem- how the Republicans will attack Joe Biden? Can you say that again? You cut out. Sorry. Sorry. Well, the uh, will the selection of Harris change the the, the argument against Joe Biden? To some extent, yeah. So, so because before Harris was picked, well, a couple of ways. So before Harris was picked, um, they were trying to, the Trump campaign was trying to paint Biden as someone who wanted to abolish the police, which was nonsense anyway, right? Um, and <laughs> right. you know, just simply untrue. But they, but you know, Biden said some things that you know were sort of you know taken out of context and misconstrued and trying to say, you know, Biden is sort of against law and order. He's soft on yeah. crime, you know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that becomes really implausible um, with with Harris now on the ticket. Right. Now, that doesn't mean they won't try. I'm sure they, they will. Yeah. Um, but but all of a sudden that becomes a less fruitful line of attack and a more fruitful line of attack would say, hey, basically a vote for for Biden is really actually a vote for Harris um, because Harris is where the energy is. Harris represents where the Biden you know, campaign has been going, right? The Biden campaign has been moving steadily leftward yeah. um, over the past six months and hasn't really changed course significantly. Um, and Harris is potentially, you know, the, the next, you know, the next president as well. Yeah. Um, and so they're going to basically, they're going to, they're going to hammer Harris really, really, really hard. Um, yeah. So I think this is going to have a pretty big impact upon the sorts of um, campaign strategy you're going to see going forward. Yeah, I think like I think that's right. I mean, I think you know, if you'd had Karen Bass, who for a while was like you know sort of a rising possibility, if she'd had her as vice presidential candidate, the um, kind of narrative about the police would have been much more plausible, right? right. Like, well, maybe he's actually moving in that direction. Right. With Harris's background as a prosecutor, as Attorney General of California, you know, they might try that, but that doesn't feel like something that's going to stick, right? So yeah. you have to kind of think about other lines of attack. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, is Biden is you know, a likable guy, right? You know, whatever you think about sort of his, you know, current mental capacity, whatever you think about his stances, you know, he's the sort of guy, you know, you don't necessarily think as, you know, if you're Republican, public enemy number one, right? Mm -hmm. He's generally quite likable, right? Um, And in a way that that Trump certainly isn't. And so, but all of a sudden you, you bring in someone who is, who's very aggressive, um, someone who doesn't have that sort of likability, um, yep. And and that that can hurt Biden. That's one of Biden's greatest assets. Um, and yep. so I think you know by hammering sort of that that sort of lack of likability that Harris brings to the ticket. Yeah. I mean that that's going to be a big opening. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you know I, I wonder if that's not why they were trying like a lot of other options. Like they were I think deeply considering some other people, and it just kept coming back to like I mean, but nobody checks the boxes like Harris. Right. But I think that is the downside, right? Is that in some ways. You know, she um, she brings an edge and that edge could help in some instances. It might help could. in a debate with Pence or something. But but it, you know, it, it is a kind of different feel 
um, than kind of, you know, what Joe Biden's strength is. Yeah. So, so Biden, actually, you know, and Harris will be smart, you know, if they get on the campaign trail and Harris tries to come across as more moderate, yeah. you know, doesn't take the sort of really aggressive approach, tries to do things to be more likable. Um, yeah. And I think that will, that will go a long way because, you know, despite what Harris has done in the past, you know, most people aren't paying attention to politics uh, the right. way we do. And that's, that's probably fine. Good for yep. all of you. <laughs> yep. You have a life. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you know, there, there's still plenty of room for Harris to sort of, you know, at least, you know, project a different sort of image if she, yep. if she takes care to do so. Yeah. Yep. That is a good point, Matt. Uh, in a recent poll, even as of today, I think a quarter of Americans don't know who Kamala Harris is, period. Yep. So uh, there's plenty of room for her to do impression management moving forward. Yes, absolutely. The other thing I'll say is I am actually more excited than than usual about the vice presidential debate, uh, mostly <laughs> because I am sort of dreading the presidential debates. Oh man, uh, I, they're yeah. just they're just going to be uh, two old men yelling at clouds. Uh, so <laughs> I. <clears throat> But well, I'm looking like halfway through, they both fall asleep, right? Like that, you know. <laughs> or 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 both or both pour the George H. W. Bush uh, move and just start looking at their watches. Um, <laughs> no, in all ser- in all seriousness, uh, Mike uh, Pence is an underrated debater who has a lot yeah. of media experience and is yeah. pretty savvy in front of a camera, yep. despite his general sort of I think public impression of being sort of a stiff board. Yep. And Kamala Harris is a is a prosecutor who is very yep. media savvy. That there can, the most fireworks of the debates can be at the vice presidential debate. Yeah. Um, and yep. frankly, that might be a good thing because one thing that this pick does help do is move towards the resolution of the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. Yep. For eight years, Barack Obama was the undisputed leader of the Democratic Party, and since he left office in 2016, there has been a real power vacuum in the Democratic yep. Party, which has been contested from the left, from people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to an extent, and people from sort of the, I guess what I would say, the traditional seat of Democratic power, people like Joe Biden, and uh, um, and even people like Cory Booker, for example, who kind of fit in that kind of right uh, that space mm-hmm. and and we and with joe biden being the nominee and now get basically elevating harris to be potentially the most powerful vice president in modern history this is really sort of saying this is what the democratic party is going to be at least for the near future right. is in, in this space uh we're not going to go full bernie sanders we're not going to go democratic socialist we're going to move to the left but not in a not in, in large strides is that fair yeah, I mean, it depends on what you mean by large strides, um, but it, it does yeah. seem that that Harris is fairly representative of the new generation of Democrats and the direction that the Democratic Party has been taking over the past two to four years. Um, and that this would, you know, assuming, you know, Biden wins, um, that does happen, then, then yeah, Harris represents the party's future. It's not guaranteed she would be the party's, you know, nominee. Um, next time around, uh, depending on, you know, things that happen along the way. And, you know, politics is, you know, it's crazy here in the United States. Mm-hmm. So who yeah. knows? Um, but but at the very least, it, it does indicate the sort of person um, yeah. that the Democratic Party would would eventually pick after a Joe Biden should Biden win. Yep. Yep. I think if Biden wins, she's the runaway favorite to be the 
Democrat, the Democratic yes. flag bearer. If he loses, I think she still becomes option A, but with several, several other options contesting that, probably. Maybe, maybe. Um, Actually, I'm not so sure about that. I don't that. know. A lot of times, the, the losing vice presidential pick, that's it. They're done. Um, yeah. So, you know... If, you look back at the most recent ones, you know, they didn't, they didn't go on to, for the most part, they didn't go on to, to higher level careers and office as president. So I think the last unsuccessful nominee to the vice presidential nominee to actually get a nomination later was Bob Dole. And that was only after three tries and a long time as a Senate majority leader. So yeah, yeah he, I, really, he really didn't get it off the strength of being a vice yeah. presidential yeah, nominee. I don't think many people remembered in 1996 that he had been <laughs> Jerry Ford's um, VP nominee, you know, 20 years before, right? So that was right. hardly a, a major factor. And in 80, he was almost a footnote when he ran um, for the nomination, right? So, yeah, I don't know. Honestly, if she loses, I mean, that'll be two losses for her in a year, right? Like failing in the primaries and failing as VP yeah. candidate. Um, and so then she would have to somehow become, I think, more charismatic and and clearer about what she actually wants to do as president um, by 24. If she's VP, then, yeah, I think she does become the, the top choice, although she might get a serious run for her money. But those VPs, sitting VPs usually have a pretty big advantage. Yeah. So we've talked about the meaning of this pick for the Biden campaign. We've talked about it for the meeting for the Trump campaign. We've talked about it for our, the meeting for the democratic party. Um, we're not historians, uh, uh, but we uh, reflecting on this uh, right now in the very short aftermath of the Harris selection, there's been a lot of talk about this being historic. It's, it's only yep. the third time a woman has been a major party uh, uh, on, on a major, well, no, I'm sorry. The, fourth time a woman has been a major party nominee for president or vice president and yep. the first time a woman of color is that is that nominee yep this is this is historic from that perspective is there a deeper level of history to this or is it sort of just this do we make note of that kind of component of this does this become a um a more salient feature of the election as it moves forward probably i don't think you will ever see a democratic ticket of two white guys I think you always see a racially diverse ticket and probably also always see a man and a woman um, or maybe two women, perhaps, um, yeah. although they would probably smart to do a man and a woman overall, um, I think, because that's that's sort of the direction that the Democratic Party is headed. I mean, that is that is important to the party. That's important to many of the voters in the party. Um, and and I think that that has an impact on, you know, who future VEEP nominations are. Right. You know, so if sure. you're a, you know, that, that's going to have a big impact. So if you're a, you're a white guy or whatever, like you're probably going to have to pick a woman or the very least, very least pick someone who is not white. Right. Um, yep. So I think that's going to be important as well. I don't think you're real. I don't think we're going back to something different than that for the Democrats. So yeah. I, I buy that. And that makes sense, especially because once we sort of made this move to do otherwise would be sort of retrograde. It would look like you were taking a step yeah. backwards. If, you know, if Joe, if Joe Biden picked Chris Dodd or something like that, I'm, I'm picking on Chris, I'm picking on Chris Dodd because Chris Dodd led, uh, um, led Joe Biden's VP selection vetting process. And when uh, Dick Cheney did that for George W. Bush, he ended up picking himself uh, to be vice president. So I did have this brief flirtation with the idea of what if Chris Dodd picks himself and what an absolutely horrendous <laughs> VP pick that would be. Oh my um, and, and and I will say, you know, and the reason why you, you know a a you know a a white presidential candidate would need to pick 
a non-white presidential candidate, as in the case here, um, is not so much because you need to drive up, you know, in the case of Harris um, and Biden, you know, the turnout of black Americans, right? Um, you know, black Americans basically didn't come out to vote for Harris in the primary. Um, right. They mm -hmm. voted for Biden. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, so they're not the ones that need convincing. What the people who need convincing are the people on the far left, the white people who actually embrace identity politics, um, who embraces as an important sort of component of their party's platform. They're the people that are really seeking um, that sort of uh, that kind of diversity on the ticket. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that. So we're just about 80 days from the election. I think 81 days, maybe. Um, Buckle up, people. Right? So that's a long time. A lot can happen. In, we're, we're, not, we're due for not just an October surprise, but a couple of September surprises, maybe a late August surprise or two. Uh, there's going to be uh, four or five shifts to the story about coronavirus. Um, there will probably be some kind of uh, large-scale international incident that directly involves the United States between now and then. Just playing the numbers here, right? This, with, with the relative right. frequency that these things happen, uh, <laughs> there's going to be a lot to happen between now and the election. As at, at the present time, as you are recommending people who are starting, it, maybe the Harris pick is when they started to tune into this process. They're starting to pay attention now. What would you tell people to pay attention to? What are the things worth letting sort of wash over you like water off a duck's back and what are some things you should say? What should stick? What are some things that you should be that you should be sort of remembering and making note of as you observe this election process? All right, not everybody at once. Uh, okay, so okay, so first of all, um, of of the the former category of things that you should sort of wa let wash over you. Um, so sort of the the day to day um, polling numbers, specific of especially of specific polls. Mm. Don't worry about those. Um, polls are going to fluctuate um, up and down by a few points. Um, don't latch on to any one poll about anything. At least at the presidential level, you get a lot sure. bigger polls at lower level offices. But president, don't latch onto one. Look at polling averages. Um, yeah. I would highly recommend. Um, Five thirty eight has a model, but they also have a aggregation of polls. I would highly recommend them. You could also look at your Real Clear Politics. They have a um, aggregation as well. I think um, the 538 aggregation is better because they rank um, polls according to their quality. Um, and mm -hmm. there, there really is a difference in polling quality. So yep. I highly recommend them take a look at their, so the general trend of where the 538 polling aggregate is going, right? Keep an eye on that. Don't worry about sort of the particulars. Um, the 538 model is very useful as well. And I would highly rec recommend that you go to their page um, and check that out. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, um, I don't know. What would you say, Andy? Sorry, I missed the last thing you said. You froze for a second. No, I was, was <laughs> going to toss it to you, you for, for more thoughts. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of the polling side, that's, that's an excellent summary. Um, I think I, I guess I'm kind of I, I don't know like how much the campaign matters in some ways right it feels like people are very already stuck on where they're gonna vote right now right um, and so there may, there may be some some exceptions to that um, but uh, and I think there are some exceptions to that in the middle but I think uh, on the whole right and we've talked about this before in this podcast people are in their tribes right and so you already kind of know um, 
you know, what you're going to do based on that, that kind of tribal identity. Right. And so, mm -hmm. um, I guess I, I'm interested to watch and I think people should be interested to watch like it. Um, and right now it, it doesn't feel like either campaign is being crystal clear. I mean, Trump's making these sort of, you know, appeals to fear tactics or things like through the, you know, the postal service thing, he's pandering by, you know, like trying to give us relief on our payroll tax and then promising, like, if I get reelected, I will make sure that that stays permanent. Otherwise you have to pay it back and in 21, right. Uh, <laughs> things like that. Right. Um, and Biden seems to be playing a version of kind of prevent defense, right. Where it's just mm -hmm. like, I'm going to try not to make mistakes. Um, I'm going to let Donald Trump self-destruct. I'll become president and then we'll all see what happens. Right. Yeah. Um, and how much I can actually govern um, because there's concerns about my mental capacity, but I'm not going to address those in public um, or take, take sort of tests to, to prove that I'm actually okay. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't, I struggle myself to know like, what do you, what do we actually watch that matters? It's intriguing as kind of political theater, um, but they don't seem to be defining, like, it, it doesn't feel like it's about policy, I guess, um, in terms of the actual, actual debates, even though they will make policies and those policies will matter. Um, yeah. so you feel free to rescue me from my cynicism, but that's kind of where I'm at. Oh, I, yeah, it, it is mostly theater and, um, and yeah, I agree. Um, and so that's why I love looking at polls because it brings yeah. some sort of, um, <laughs> You know, some sort of right. ob objective um, sort of read into what what's going on and what people are thinking. I mean, really, both both campaigns are sort of playing this as sort of well, the Trump campaign especially is trying to play this as you know turning out the base, and that's yep. how we're going to win. Um, and that's what he's been about basically his whole presidency. Yes. Um, the Biden yeah. campaign is going to be sort of caught between trying to turn out their base. Um, and simply trying to make this be a referendum on Trump. Um, if they're smart, they'll try to do more of the latter. Um, but Harris is sort of a pick that tries to make it more about turning out the base. Um, so we'll, we'll see sort of how, how they handle that. Um, yeah. Biden so far has been successful, not be because he's done basically nothing. Um, <laughs> and, and the less that we see of Biden and Harris, probably the better it is for them. Um, is is kind of the way I'm seeing this, and so so pay attention to basically what those what you know what's going to be what's going to pull the swing voters one direction or the other, yep, um, and what's going to discourage people you know those sorts of people from coming out to vote either way. Take a look at that. Um, you can look at events to see, you know, what, you know, how that might push people one way or the other. And then just look at the polls in particular, don't look just at the national polls, look at the polls of sort of the tipping point states that the, the states that are most likely um, to push, um, you know, push one of them sort of over over the threshold yeah. in the Electoral College. Yeah. Yeah. Matt, I completely agree with you. I think that the strategy for Biden thus far has been. Uh, to very to, to expose himself to public scrutiny in a very limited kind of way to basically say I'm well known the public remembers me from being eight years of being vice president that's yep. how they remember me even though that was um, at most recent four years ago right and so I'm Donald Trump is kind of imploding I'm predicting yep. that the economy is going to be worse by November I'm predicting that the coronavirus will be worse by November. Um, and I'm predicting Donald Trump will be worse by November. And so I'm going to just uh, like, let him punch himself in the face uh, until the American public decides to hold a referendum on him. I don't know if that's um, sustainable. And I, I think at a certain point, the media is going to pressure uh, Biden to be more public and is yeah. going to ask questions if he's not. And so there's a dangerous game here 
of sort of playing rope-a-dope and letting your opponent punch themselves out. At a certain point, they're going to ask him to throw a few punches, and if that comes late enough, or conversely, if something dramatic happens with the economy in a positive way or with coronavirus in a positive way, um, Donald Trump could really reap a strong reward from that. Yeah. Uh, because, Because our attention span is pretty short. Right, right. I think that's right, and I think there's always a danger when you let when you let your opponent decide how we're going to fight this, right? Which is kind of how Biden is doing it right now. Um, it, you know, it's, it's dangerous because then you play the game on his turf and granted Trump's turf is problematic for the reasons you guys have already described, but um, you know, it, it just, it does give him some opportunities and, you know, yeah. he pulled it yeah, off and- four years ago and we didn't expect he would. So mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't put money against him at this point either. Right. Even though it looks like he's on his way to defeat. Yeah, one of the things that Trump has done is he's sort of been the one sort of shaping shaping the narrative of his presidency, shaping the terms, um, you know, and, and you know, the media always responds in a very predictable way to what he says, right? So he's good at shaping the yeah. terms. And if Biden sort of seeds that over, then, you know, Trump is smart, he can shape the terms to his own advantage. He can basically use fear mongering or simply, you know, point, you know, to to the the liberal policies that Biden has endorsed and that Harris has endorsed in the campaign um, and that they represent, you know, a part of the party that is that is, you know, far left of the even many of the moderates um, in the country. And if, you know, he's able to do that and Biden isn't able to come out with a good counter, you know, that could really hurt him. Um, you know, we're still we're still 80 days out. Yep. Um, okay. Polls can actually shift um, a lot between yep. early August and voting day. So in the past 11 election cycles since Carter in 76, the average poll movement, the average poll movement between early August and election day is 11 points. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. significant. Uh, but the most, the biggest, most recent shift was was Bush in in two thousand, um, and so I think may, maybe I'll push back a little bit against Chris here. Is I think there's a really good chance you see the gap sort of narrow um, between Trump yeah. and and Biden here. Uh, yeah. This is often what happens historically as people sort of tune in as things get ramped up. Um, you know, it's probably sort of downhill from here for Biden. He, there's very little he can do to improve his current position, but there's a lot of things that could happen that could make his position vis-a-vis Trump relatively worse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because everyone's opinions on Trump are fixed, right? Everyone knows exactly what they think about Trump, and basically that's not going to change. But but there's a lot more sort of room for movement on people's opinions of Biden and Harris, right? Um, You know, Biden, we're sort of familiar with him, but, you know, not in the same, you know, sort of way that we're familiar with Obama. And Harris is a relative unknown. We're going to get to know her better, right? And so as the country gets to know their ticket and what they stand for more, um, there's good reason to believe that some people will shift their opinions. And some, you know, some of that could, you know, on the net sort of go against Biden. Um, and so, yep. you know, the gap, the gap could close for that reason. And then, you know, if there is a slight turnaround in the COVID situation or the economy, um, that could, that could have an effect as well. So now whether or not this is consequential, um, and whether or not the gap closes enough for Trump, right. uh, remains to be seen. Um, but remember, you know, because of the electoral college, um, Trump doesn't have to win the popular vote. He just needs right. to win. Um, in a certain sequence of states. Um, and if he does, uh, he can pull it off. So he's still the underdog. Um, the 538 forecast has, you know, Biden win, winning sort of 71 out of 100 times. Um, but um, but Trump is not out of the game yet. And I wouldn't be surprised if the 538 
forecast shows a narrowing, maybe not a lot, but a narrowing over the next two or three months. So if that happens, don't yep. be surprised. Um, just realize there are reasons for this and um, that that can be explained using economics and even looking to history. Yeah, no, I, I think, yeah. go, go ahead, ahead. I'll just add two quick things. I mean, one is, I think the one thing that could make it a bigger Biden lead is something that's out of his control. And that's yes. that things get a lot worse, right? Yep. Coronavirus gets a lot worse. The economy kind of retanks after showing some recovery signs. Um, those are terrible things. And those would probably move the needle toward Biden, right? Um, and so maybe make his lead widen. I think you're right. There's very little he can do probably to make his lead a lot bigger. Um, the other thing I'll just say about the polls, I agree that I think they will tighten some. Um, because I think people will come you know, home to their identities and we're, you know, we're pretty close, right, in terms of like right and left. But at the same time, I also don't expect them to move 11 points, right? Um, I think it is significant that we have not seen that kind of move in the last couple decades, right? The, the, that when you look back at sort of what happened from say 76 to 2000, there was a lot more movement because there was a lot more fluidity in American kind of voting preferences at that point. We've seen, and we've talked about this on this podcast before, you know, sort of polarization rise in the last 25 years or so. Um, and that means that the, the movement also does not, you know, happen as much, right? There will be some, um, but I think there'll be more like coming home and saying, well, I'm not enthused about Biden Harris, but I'm going to vote for them anyway because I'm a Democrat or I'm not enthused about Trump, Pence, but I can't stomach Biden-Harris, so I'm going to vote for, you know, the president, right? Um, I think it would be that kind of like just sort of admitting like, okay, yeah, I'm going to vote the way I usually vote um, yeah. from some people who right now are saying like, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? Or I'm, I'm thinking about it, right? Or I'm thinking about this other vote and then they'll be like, no, I can't, right? Um, when, you know, November comes around. Um, yeah. But I don't expect a, a big shift. Um, that would... That would surprise me absent some really dramatic external factor. Yeah, um, no, that, that's exactly right. I mean, polarization has really sort of, you know, locked people up within their respective camps, yeah. <laughs> you know, such that they're, they're not going to cross over. So what matters is, you know, the, the turnout of those respective groups exactly. and then what happens with that sort of tiny little segment of people who truly do swing back and forth. And yep. what Trump needs to do is he needs to get his entire base turned out and he needs to get basically most of the people on the fence. That's what he's got to do. Yep. Um, and, and that, that's a very tall order, um, considering yep. where he's at right now. Yep. Not impossible, but it's, it's, um, it's a significant hurdle for him. Yep. I'll just say one thing as we pay, this is, I think this goes into my category of things people should pay attention to. And that is the likelihood of, of turnout, because that's something that we'll start to mm -hmm. get a handle on over the course of the next 80 days. And generally speaking, uh, Certain candidates, and Trump is one of these one of these candidates, attract people who don't normally vote. So back in 2016, a significant number of Trump's voters, not a majority, but like but a substantial minority of Trump's voters, were people who voted for Trump who hadn't voted in other prior elections. These were people referred to as low information voters. I'm not sure that that's the majority that I would use against them. I would say I'd probably call them low commitment voters. These are people who, <laughs> uh, under normal circumstances, can't be bothered to vote, but because they knew the name Trump, maybe they'd seen him on The Apprentice, he was this national celebrity, they decided to vote for him when they wouldn't normally vote. Yep. And yep. Trump, if it, Trump, part of Trump's uh, get out the vote strategy is also getting people like that to come back to the polls and, right. and, for, and to bring some friends with them mm. when they come, to, to, to capture that 50% of Americans who are eligible to vote and who do not vote. Yep. yep. Agreed. So, 
Uh, pay attention to that. Pay attention to how that process is going, because Joe Biden probably isn't going to do that. They're probably people who vote for Joe Biden probably aren't going to be people who rarely, if ever, vote. They're they're probably more committed voters that Trump yep. is able to capture. So, yep. Yep. Um, otherwise, I agree with these gentlemen. Uh, I don't think you need to pay too much attention to individual polls. I think at some point in the future of this podcast, we'll do another. We've done this in the past, but we'll do a reminder of what different polls mean how different yep. polls work and why polling aggregators are your friends and why polling battleground <laughs> states makes a lot more sense than national polls. But yeah. we'll do that on a, on a future uh, future episode. Oh, yeah. A couple other things to pay attention to. We're not just going to talk about the presidency for the next 80 days. We'll also be previewing models for predicting uh, the House and the Senate. Uh, and we'll be looking at some other uh, features of the campaigns themselves, as well as other things happening in the world of politics. Uh, international relations, folks, I haven't forgotten about you. So, um, <laughs> But guys, before we sign off for the day, uh, anything else you want to promote as we're getting ready to uh, um, get back to the school year, uh, social distance though it is? <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. It'd be an interesting fall. That's all I know. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be real interesting. I'm. Uh, I'll just say this: if you're if you're um, if you're affiliated with Bethel University, uh, around Constitution Day, somewhere in the middle of September, we're planning a uh, socially distanced get together for a drive-in uh, a drive-in theater experience of watching Hamilton together as a as a group. So if you want to be if you want to uh, join that, we'll have some details on that at a future podcast. But um, thanks for listening to us. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. You can email the channel at uh, channel3900 at gmail.com. Please subscribe to our channel on Podbean or whatever uh, service you use, Spotify, uh, App, iTunes, uh, to get your podcasts. Uh, we'd love to have you subscribe because there's lots of great stuff coming uh, down the podcast channel, whether it's uh, tweet victory or election shock therapy. We're going to do an emergency two five two podcast tomorrow with the canceling of half of the college football season. So uh, <clears throat> stay tuned for all of those conversations. Uh, but until you hear from us again, thanks for listening and go Royals. Mm -hmm.